0: I hope you're there in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I am so excited to be continuing in this series. We've spent six weeks just on chapter 1, which hopefully, we'll see. If that's indicative of the rest of the book, we'll see what happens. <laughs> see how the Lord uh, brings us uh, to this passage. But I've been so um just enthused and excited about studying this particular book. It's uh, it's likely very familiar. You're likely very familiar with a, a ton of the passages and a ton of the sections uh, in this particular uh, letter, but uh, I know that re-examining it again – what is that? No, I'm not recording. The internet went out, so we'll just – Go without. We'll strip it down tonight. <laughs> no no live streaming. It's okay. So you can say whatever you want. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I'm so happy that we can be in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, and we're entering now, I would say... Not that Philippians chapter 1 isn't the meat, but Philippians chapter 2 is much of the meat of this letter. Uh, you are likely very familiar with those uh, verses that Pastor Nathan read, uh, verses 5 through 11 especially, in talking about Jesus Christ who made himself of no reputation and, and such like. Uh, it's known as, quote, the Christ hymn in which uh, Paul explodes, for lack of a better word, uh, into this just exalt exalting refrain about the Lord Jesus Christ, much like he does in Colossians chapter 1. If you compare both of those passages, you'll note there's a lot of similarities in terms of its just uplifting of Jesus. Uh, and he does that here uh, in chapter 2. But uh, as we did with chapter 1, we're going to s- kind of subdivide it in terms of just trying to get our bearings on what is Paul's message and intent behind uh, this letter. As we've been noting, he's emphasizing Christ our joy. That's pretty self-evident, I think. But And we've been laying stress on the fact that it's not just joy, but it's joy found in Christ. He's the linchpin. He's the the deciding factor in this joy that's being imparted and instilled in this church. Uh, And so as we saw in chapter one, it was all about Christ as our life of joy. And we showed and we examined the ways in which we can make that our same testimony, that all throughout our lives, regardless of situation or context or circumstance, Christ is our joy. He doesn't change and then in chapter 2 uh, i think we have a little bit different of uh, of a motive in terms of what paul is doing because i think in chapter 2 we see him pressing and stressing the fact that paul is our or excuse me jesus is our uh, example of joy and specifically, he's our example of joy through one key characteristic, which I would say is evident from the outline that I think is pretty clear from this chapter. So uh, I think chapter 2 can be neatly divided into, I would say, five movements. And I have them up here. And don't worry, we're not going to get through all five. We're actually just going to get through one, and that's on purpose. And So I think in verses 1 through 4, uh, we see uh, Paul talking about the essence of humility. And uh, and then he moves in chapter in chapter two verses five through eight, uh, talking about the embodiment of humility. Uh, This is where he's talking about Christ and Christ descending into the likeness of man and whatnot. And then in uh, verses 9 through 11, I think we have the exaltation of humility, which is something that is very characteristic of Jesus throughout the Gospels, right? Where he talks about how the lowly are uplifted and the proud are brought low. And this is, again, what we see coming to uh, fruition, perhaps, through the exaltation of the lowliest of them all, which is Christ himself. And then... In verses twelve through eighteen, I have what we've called the enterprise of humility in terms of how this humility works in us in our Christian life and walk in faith. And then, lastly, in verses nineteen through the end of the chapter, I think we see here the example of humility, especially as Paul is sort of relaying this story with Epaphroditus and Timotheus. And uh, I think hopefully this will all come together in a couple of weeks. Tonight, what I want to do is just focus on this point. In particular, the essence of humility, because I think, as it was clear from the outline, uh, the, uh, the way in which this humility or this, excuse me, this joy is exampled to us, this joy that is found in Christ is, I think, it's very significant that Paul presses and leans into this idea that it is precisely humility where we find our true joy in Christ. You know, as we saw last time in verse 27 of chapter 1, this was his prayer, right? That the Philippians' lifestyle, their, quote, conversation, as it says in verse 27, would be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Which is really just a way of saying, I pray with all that's in me, Paul is saying, that your lifestyle would be as it is suitable to the gospel, or as he would say in Ephesians four and five, that you would walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. That's he's essentially talking about the same sorts of things. And it's interesting to me how he notes that this one of the chief characteristics of this church As they are being charged to to demonstrate gospel living, chief among that charge is this charge for unity. As he says in verse 27 of chapter 1, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the sake of, or excuse me, for the faith of the gospel. This is that theme of unity that's coming to the surface. This is a theme that is very much thematic for the Apostle Paul. He uh, writes about this almost in every single letter he writes about this idea of either brotherly or ecclesiastical, you know, church unity, unity between brothers and sisters in Christ, unity between assemblies for the sake of the mission of the kingdom. And it's easy to see why, I think churches, I'm not going to blow your brains with this, churches are made up of sinners. They're made up of redeemed sinners, yes, but guess what sinners do? Sinners sin. (laughs) Broken people do broken things because broken people, that's what they're made up of. It shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't just stupefy us when the churches get into trouble sometimes because sinners sin. And guess what? If sinners didn't sin, then there would be no reason for the church to exist. (laughs) It's here for that precise reason, to champion the message of what? That there's a savior from sinners. (laughs) That there's one who can call us out of that. Who has spoken the words of forgiveness and reconciliation through the words of his son Jesus Christ. This is why we're here, to hold forth that message. (laughs) So if we want to get rid of sinners, in some ways I think we do, but in other ways we don't. Because sinners are all that there are. To, to pretend that, they're not, that there's not sinners in our pews is to pretend that there's no reason for us to be here. And I would even say this. Find me a church that has no sin and I will show you a church that doesn't preach the gospel. And I would say that that's very much I think what's evident in Paul's life. One of the things I was thinking about recently, and this has nothing to do with this message. But isn't it interesting to me that, or hopefully it's interesting to you too, but it is to me. Uh, when he's writing to the Corinthian church. What do you think of when you think of the Corinthian church? <laughs> Scandal, bad stuff. <laughs> they were a church who was not doing what they were supposed to be doing, lots of sin within their midst. And you notice what he calls them in the first chapter? He calls them saints. <laughs> he affirms who they are in Christ. <laughs> Because it's their faith in Jesus Christ that affirms their identity. Yes, there's, uh, there's all types of things that Paul goes into to discipline them, to weed out their wrongdoing so that they could further evidence the gospel in their lives too. Yes, live out the gospel and the truth of it. But I love the fact that all throughout all the letters that Paul writes, he's affirming Christ as the, the holder, the keeper of who they are. And I would say that this is where we always find the through line to Paul. It's always through Jesus Christ. And such is why I think we have here, uh, I think, one of the most insightful little passages at the opening of chapter 2. Because he's demonstrating exactly what's needed for a church to have unity. And the reason why this is so uh, in, indicative of Paul's letters, because as we said, sinners sin, uh, friction happens. People can get disunited. It's just how it goes. It comes with the territory, unfortunately, when it comes to church ministry. There's a, there's a fighting to come back together to the one line. As we noted last week, unity is often broken and fractured when we have two varying goals Even if the goals are just this minuscule off. What happens? Those divergent points end up in very drastic different locations and destinations. Such is why Paul is saying here. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But where he says be like minded. Of one accord. Of one mind. He wants you to have the same driving force. So here I think. What he's demonstrating is that a unified assembly, which is the chief way that an assembly of God lives out the gospel, quote, has gospel conversation, as he says in verse 27. The chief way that an assembly does that is through humility. As he says here in chapter 2, verses 1, this is what he, 1 through 4, this is what he's talking about. This Humility, which I would say is the operative force, is the animating force of unity. It comes back to this lowliness of mind that Paul is talking about. An assembly of sinners or saved sinners is a unified assembly precisely because they've been humbled. And I have no doubt that the Philippians knew this. They understood, I think, what Paul was talking about. As is evident from chapter 4, there was probably a little bit of a scuffle. There were some things that were perhaps going on that Paul wanted to weed out. But I, I think what Paul is doing here is he's taking the opportunity to remind these believers, these Philippians who were so dear to him. Of the very intricate and intimate relationship between humility and unity and how both of them find their root in Jesus Christ alone. And as a local church, we ought to be, I think, preoccupied with what it means to be, quote, the church. And I think what Paul does here is give us exactly that. How do we uh, evidence a uh, united assembly of humbled sinners? (laughs) Well, I think there's four ways we can do that. Four sort of, I would say, truths which we could uh, identify as characteristic of the essence of humility. I think there's four components here. So let's just go through them. Uh, In verse 1, I think the first component to humility is truth. The first component to the essence of humility is truth. Notice verse 1 again. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Here, at the root of all of this, the the root of humility is the truth of the gospel. That's what I think he's affirming here in this verse. And I think uh, our English translations do us a disservice in terms of Translating that word there, if. Now, Pastor Nathan did a good job of sight of and repeat. <laughs> Affirming, I think, what Paul was intending. But I would say that, because uh, um, nearly all English translations use the same word, if. If there be. Which I think lends us to believe that there was like a sliver of doubt, but that's not at all what Paul was saying. It's, it's better if you want to just affirm this in your own mind, just read it as this, since there is. <laughs> because this is essentially what Paul is doing. <laughs> since there is these things found in Christ. He's removing all hesitancy. He's removing any sort of uh, ability or any sort of inkling that he is reticent about what he's just talked about. He is saying, since these things are true... There's, this is how we ought to live. This ought, is how we ought to be united together. Since these things are true, he might say, live like it. <laughs> if there be, since there is consolation in Christ. Since there is consolation comfort of his love. Since there is fellowship of the spirit. Since there is a deep abiding affectionate mercy. That's what that bowels means. (laughs) Bowels is not a word we use except in certain (laughs) contexts. But that's he's getting into the, the New Testament context what it means is this very deep affection that comes from your insidest insides. And that's what he is saying here. That's what you find in the gospel. A deep, insidest, inside springing affection and mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say, in front of all this, who cannot but be humbled? I'd say that's what he's intending to lean into. That the truth of the gospel humbles anyone who comes before it. The tenets that we hold as our faith, our dogma, if you will, the fact that Jesus died and and took away our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, that he rose again the third day, all those sorts of things, they are not just meant to be our dogma, they're meant to humble us to the dust. They're meant to bring us low in which we can, no one can stand in front of this gospel and stand knowing, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can accomplish that. Yeah, that's true of me. No one who comes face to face with God's law can stand and that's The point, because that's exactly when God's gospel comes in to stand as our law keeper in the place of law breakers in order to give us life. That's what we hold to. It keeps us humble, knowing that we can't fulfill what the law of God requires. And that's essentially the gospel in a nutshell. The shortest way to describe it is that the act of God vindicating his holiness by fulfilling that demand for holiness by himself. God is a holy God, infinitely righteous, demanding 100% 24 7 perfection. We are not capable of that. Try and fulfill, try and actually live by the Ten Commandments, and you will realize just how hard that is. Always putting God first. Not just on Sundays. 24-7. <laughs> it's, a hum- it's a humiliating realization. But such is the goodness of the gospel. Because guess who comes in and answers the bill? Who comes and pays that price? Jesus himself. The Christ. Therefore the only proper response to these truths being true is humility, to so be humbled in this reverential awe, this reverential fear of what God has done on behalf of we who could never do it, that sending his only begotten son is the only answer for our law-breaking. And then, you see, this is what it means to be the church. <laughs> this is our message. This is what we are called to proclaim. The good news of the law keeper. Who came on behalf of law breakers. To fulfill the law for them. This is our message. To champion the consolation of Christ. And the comfort of his love. And the fellowship of the spirit. And the deep abiding bowels of mercies. That abide in Christ alone. This is our message. The only platform we stand on. (laughs) I pray with all that's in me that God keeps us, keeps this church on that one platform. And we don't get divergent into all the different things that you see churches getting distracted by. Drawing people in with crazy gifts and, and, and insane little marketing programs and schemes just to get people through the doors. You now we preach Christ crucified. We preach the consolation of the Christ. And the the fellowship that we can have through his spirit by faith. And the comfort of love and the bowels of mercies that come through the preaching of that gospel. That's our platform. That's our stance. Paul is saying the same thing. Be a humbled church by knowing that the truth of God humbles us to the dust. This is what I think he's talking about. It's this truth that lies at the foot of Of humility. But also, number two, it comes in verse number two, and it's sort of an outworking of that verse number one. So the essence of humility is made up of truth. I think it's also made up of fellowship. Look at verse two. Or let's read verses one and two again. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Of one mind. I love how Paul here says it is a fulfillment of his joy that the Philippians would live in fellowship together. I think that's the, the shorthand of what he describes of being like minded and having the same love, the same accord, and the same mind together. It's fellowship. It comes from that word in verse one, by the way, where he says the fellowship of the Spirit. That's that word, koinonia, which is the word where we get our description of the church. He's <laughs> saying part of what it means to be the church is to have this joy of being the church, of fellowshipping together as God's called out saints who can rally around the Spirit who ministers to them what? The consolation and comfort of Christ. What a humbling thing to know that we are all one in the Lord Jesus. And I think that this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of what it means to be the church. Because often we confuse unity with uniformity. As if the two are the same. As though our common faith in Jesus Christ means that we all have to live the same. And we all have to look the same. And we all have to have the same sorts of comportment and decorum and all those sorts of things. That is decidedly not the gospel. And that's not what I think is meant by fellowship here. Because you see, what this fellowship involves, as he says, is the fellowship of precisely the Spirit. Not our same stance on politics. Not our same stance on whatever uh, institution you can insert fill in the blank. It's not our same sort of held belief about who the best college football team is. Or who the best basketball player is. Or what the best movie is. And all those artificial things that we can rally around that are fun to talk about. Not even on what the most important book of the Bible is or anything like that. We rally around one thing. It's not our polity, it's not our policy, it's not our practice of the Christian faith. What, uh, one of the uh, commentators on this passage, his name is John Henry Jowett, I love his writings, and he says this, that the Christian union is not a common label, it's a common heart. Which I think is getting to what he's talking about. But F.B. Meyer goes a little bit further and he says, Higher and better than the adhesion to a sentiment is a common devotion to a person. You see, that's what we rally around. That's what our fellowship is all encompassing around. It's what it all revolves around. It's a person and his name is Jesus. It's not some doctrine. It's not some held belief. It's a person in whose blood we are made clean and made whole. We are united by the very shed blood of God that spills for us at the mud of Golgotha and redeems us from our sins. This is what we are united around. This is what makes us one. This is what keeps our fellowship together. You see, this is what our fellowship is all about. This is what our church is all about. It's this solidarity. Not necessarily sameness. Because we can look different. We have different ideas and beliefs on a number of different things. Entertainment, music, dress, politics. It's okay. Sameness is not church unity. Solidarity with Christ is church unity. That's humbling. Because that's hard. Because we like it when we all look the same and feel the same and talk the same. (laughs) There's a blessed and beautiful diversity within the church of God, which Paul upholds and Jesus Christ loves and that we too ought to cherish. And that even though we are different, we are united by the same blood. And that's a deeper bond than if we just all have the same shirts on. You know, I've I've talked about this before. But it's so fascinating to me how you can go to a, a sporting event. I love college football. I haven't watched a lot of college football lately because life has been in a transition. But I'm hoping to this year. Also, my team has really done really poorly. So that makes me want to turn it off a lot quicker. So it doesn't help. But when we were living in Florida, it was quite easy to drive up to Tallahassee. My football team is the Florida State Seminoles. And we'd go to Tallahassee and watch games live. And I would go there with my dad and my brother and some friends sometimes. It was so funny to me how you could not know anyone in the stadium. I only know the people immediately on my left and my right. I don't know the guy in front of me or the guy behind me. But you want to know that we felt like one. When our, our team scored a touchdown, there was one game where we, it was coming down to the wire, right? You know, it was really late, and we scored a late touchdown in order to eke out the victory. I tell you, we were embracing each other like we were long-lost family members, man, <laughs> We were giving each other high fives and, and hugs, and we were cheering and screaming our lungs out because our team had just pulled it off. We were one. We had this, we were like-minded. We were of the same accord and of one mind. Even deeper than that is the unity we share in Jesus. Because guess what? That unity was all around. It was the unity of a uniform. It's uniformity. <laughs> It was the bond of having the same team colors on. But guess what's deeper than that? What's truer than that is the unity that you and I have in Jesus Christ, the, the blood of the Lamb that covers us. Oh, it's so much deeper, so much stronger, so much truer. You see, the kingdom of which we are all citizens by faith, again, that's what Paul is talking about in verse 27. The citizenship of heaven that we are called to be living out. Guess what? It has no side rooms. In which we can isolate ourselves. It calls us, this blood of Jesus calls us into one kingdom in whom there is only one king. And ushers us to live and serve as a part of that kingdom under the same banner. It's the cross of Christ alone. This is what it means to have the fellowship of the church. There's a, there's a passage that I love to share when I'm talking about these sorts of things. I'm just going to sh- read it. It's by an uh, older Presbyterian minister, Donald G. Barnhouse. He used to pastor 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he has this wonderful passage in his commentary on the book of Romans where he's talking about this idea of church unity and where we meet. And I just want to read it to you because I think it's so profound. He says this, quote, Protestantism is sometimes accused of being divided into a great many divisions, which are more apparent than real, but there is a sense in which we are divided, even as the north wall of a building is separate and distinct from the west wall. Is it not true, though, that though one stone in the north wall a hundred feet away from the corner and another stone may be in the west wall a hundred feet from that same corner, the place where the walls touch is at the corner? I'll meet you at the corner, they can say, and I can say to every man in Christ, I will meet you at the Lord Jesus Christ. I like his point. I've been talking about, talking with Rich Price. I'll steal his line. I'll give him credit later. Rich Price is one of the ones who is leading up the tent meeting in August in Sunbury. Another commercial for it. Come. Come to the tent. But he talks about how we're all of the same kingdom. We just have different last names. (laughs) But I love that meaning. I love the truth of that. That though we be divided, we meet at the corner. As Paul and Peter talk about, the chief cornerstone of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who provides and establishes and instills in us a much deeper unity than you could ever imagine. You know, when you are here and you sit in these pews by faith. You are demonstrating your faith in this fellowship that we have in the spirit. You are doing spiritual battle with all of the forces of darkness that want you to stay away. But here you're demonstrating to those around you and to the world that there's a truer family. To be found by faith. It's not just cliched to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is true. We are of the same family of God. We are united by blood. Our elder brother has made us adopted sons and daughters of our heavenly father. This is who Jesus is. He's brought us into the family, and now we have this fellowship of the Spirit. Humility is made up of fellowship. It's made up of truth. Number three, look at verse number three. Because I think the third component of humility is what I would call deference. And I think this is probably one of the most difficult of them all. Perhaps the most difficult of them all. Deference. Because Paul's words here are very sharp. Very pointed. Notice what he says, verse 3: Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Strife, you might recognize, is the same exact word from chapter 1, verse 15. It's a word which literally can mean electioneering or campaigning. And it's that idea of trumpeting your own cause at the expense of someone else. You get the picture of a politician who's almost slinging mud at his opponent to try and get him down and get more votes for himself. It's that idea. You're causing your own uh, sort of mission, your own mindset to be championed above someone else's and actually putting them down in the process. So he calls out that. He calls out vainglory in the King James as those two words put together, which just means exactly what it means. Empty pride, really useless, conceited uh, self-interest. You can see what Paul is saying here. Humility has nothing to do with this. Humility has nothing to do with strife or vainglory. It has nothing to do with this gross selfishness that is so indicative of those who would champion themselves above others, who would champion themselves above the church, above the Christ Himself. True, you see, Paul is calling out something that's almost inescapable for us. It's almost too natural. This human tendency we have to put ourselves first. You don't have to teach your kids that they should be first in line. (laughs) They want to have the first scoop of ice cream. That first cookie off the rack. They want to make sure that they get just a smidge more than their brother and sister. (laughs) That's just a little bit Just a skosh better, even if they have the truest and kindest heart. They want it just a little bit better for themselves. This is the mantra of the world. You know, I think McDonald's has made it famous, have it your way. But it was long before, embedded into human hearts, that we would have it our way all the time anyways. They just vocalized it. That's how we live. That's how the human heart operates if you're bored with what's happening in front of you, pull out your phone and have it your way. If you are not getting love and attention that you think that you deserve, you can find it in someone else, in something else. You can have it your way. If, if, if someone offends you in some way, you can just get them out of your life, unfriend them, block them, and have it your way. You can edit your friend circle. Isn't that an amazing thing about 21st century life? <laughs> You can literally mute the friends you don't want to hear from. Instead of perhaps confronting them, having a hard conversation with them, and maybe deepening a relationship, you can just mute them and get them out of your life. Because you can have it your way. You see, what is socially acceptable, those certain things, is actually stunting It's hindering our understanding of what it means to be humble and what it means to be united. Because as long as those who make up the church are caring only for their conceited campaigns, the church cannot thrive. Again, divergent pathways have very different destinations. Very different ends. They will end up at very different locations. And I would say the church's truest means of growth is the strangling of strife and vainglory. That's what the gospel does. Being humbled under the truth of God. And being brought into the fellowship of the Spirit. We have the same mind. We can champion the same cause. But guess what? Paul doesn't stop there. He presses even further and gets a little bit more pointed. Because he says, and he continues by not only saying that the church should not not just not pursue their selfish interests. But also... That they should esteem others better than themselves. Look at it he says there. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. <laughs> How many of you think that you have done that? How many would say that I make it a habit to esteem other people more than myself? <laughs> this is a hard one. Because we are so prone To operate by grace with ourselves and by law with others. We are so prone to be lenient on ourselves and our motives and our actions. And be very, very strict on others. We judge their actions so much stronger. Do we not? I like what one writer says. I'm just going to quote him because I think it's so true. Doug Wilson says, we tend to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our motives. We always lift the hood of the other guy's car first. We always give ourselves the advantage. But Paul says here to give the advantage, the benefit of the doubt, the other way. That's hard. That's difficult. It's so easy to spot sin in someone else. This is why Paul Jesus says the very this very thing to his apostles there's something about being able to see the speck in that guy's eye without even ever glancing at the beam that's sticking out of your own eye as he says <laughs> we are very good at spotting little specks of sin and, and dishonesty but I think this is getting at what the heart of Paul is and I think this is getting at what it means to be deferential You're giving the benefit of the doubt to someone that you would rather judge. And you're treating them in grace rather than law, rather than judgment. Actually, as Doug Wilson says, I like how he sums it up. You're acting as though that there's a possibility that you might be the difficult one. (laughs) Isn't that always hard to believe? (laughs) I've talked about this before, but it's so easy to get in that mindset, right? That life is just a movie, and I'm the central character, and everyone else is just background people. And they, everything revolves around me, and my life makes up my movie. You, if you operate that way, everyone else has a problem. Everyone else has something uh, that they need to fix. And here Paul is saying... Esteem others better than yourself. You want to know what to keep a church united? Is if they champion other people's successes and not their own. If they champion other people's successes instead of calling out their deficiencies, instead of calling out the ways that they are that they can get better, we call out and, and exalt the ways that they are living for God and they're showing forth the gospel. We're being deferential. Because being deferential is part of what it means to have fellowship. And that fellowship is bounded and stood on the truth. And lastly, the four components of humility truth, fellowship, deference. And lastly, number four, service. Look at verse four service. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. A very simple verse, but actually one that's very hard to put into practice and it builds off of what he's just been talking about. This is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel and the fellowship that it inspires and the deference that it instills, it culminates in sacrificial service of others before yourself. This is exactly what he's talking about. Deference leads to service, leads to going out of your way to show that you're esteeming someone more than yourself. Selfishness leads to seclusion. A life of seclusion and isolation is contrary to the gospel is contrary to what it means to have fellowship in the Spirit and to share the comfort of love that we have in Christ. It's antithetical to what it means to be the church. You cannot serve your neighbor in a monastery. Martin Luther was very much a champion of that idea. He, being called out of living the life of a monk, was very much calling out that lifestyle for being opposite of what it means to live according to the gospel. Because who needs your good works? Luther was famous for this. Who needs your good works? God doesn't need them. Your neighbor does. <laughs> you, you show your love for God by being kind and generous and deferential to your neighbor. That's what exalts God. <laughs> That's what actually glorifies the church and glorifies the grace of the Father who saves us by grace alone, by faith alone, through his Son alone. Is the, When we are uh, letting that grace and that faith champion and inspire us and instill in us a deference to serve others. This is, I think, something that we've talked about, me and Pastor Nathan and I and others, that gospel living is 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 probably perhaps better described as living with. Doing something with others. It's not just by yourself. You're a lone ranger for the gospel. That will always end (laughs) in exhaustion, in isolation. And this goes back to that word in verse number two. Koinonia, fellowship. It's that joint uh, participation with one another. You cannot be in communion with yourself. That's what Paul is talking about. Fellowship with others. Serving them. Deferring to them. Fellowshiping with them around the truth of Christ alone. And so I would say too, as Paul is here saying, Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Gospel living, this gospel conversation he's been talking about since chapter one, verse twenty-seven, is nowhere better seen than when sinners are serving one another, when they're going out of their way to show and actually demonstrate the service that is indicative of the gospel, and eventually, we would see this embodied in Christ alone. What was what was. Uh, What was Jesus' famous mission statement? I'm just going to read it for you. You can write it down. It's Mark chapter 10 verse 45. You want to know what it says? The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You can say this elsewhere. The the son of man has not come come to be served to get things his way. He has come to serve. Actually Jesus embodies exactly what Paul is talking about here. He looked on the things of others instead of the things of himself. He saw the plight of man, their predicament of being in an inescapable pit of sin. And he took that on himself. And he looked on what they needed and he went to their aid. This is what Jesus does. (laughs) This is, I think, what is so true of Paul. And this is what he's going to lean into in verses 5 through 8 that we'll get into next time. The embodiment of humility is nowhere better seen than in the person of Christ. Who lives out this essence of humility. Which is made up of truth and fellowship and deference and service. I think this is what Paul is trying to do with this church. Root them deeper into the things of the gospel. That they might stand when all things, all else is giving way. May God do the same for us. It's my prayer that we would continue to be a church united together. And be a church humbled together. (laughs) That's not a thing we like, I don't think. We don't like being humbled. Which I think is what makes it so difficult when that's the primary ingredient. As Paul is here saying, what it means to be the church is to be humbled together. (laughs) What a statement. May God humble us under the truth of his word. And may we see it for what it means. That we are bought by the same blood. Let us pray.